0: Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea, this is Naked Oceans.
1: Hello, I'm Sarah Castor-Perry and on Naked Oceans this month we're diving into ocean treasures old and new. As well as the fish we eat, there are masses of things that we take from the seas that we put to all sorts of uses – Some are highly peculiar but highly prized.
0: I was not in a position to spend $1,000 on a piece of aged whale poop.
1: And some can lead to the latest biotech inspirations.
2: And that was really just a bonanza because pretty much everything that was picked up had new molecules in it.
1: And in Critter of the Month, we'll catch up with another marine expert and ask them, if you were a marine species, which would they be and why?
2: seeing
3: them skittering across the horizon is, is such a wonderful thing.
1: Keep listening to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at NakedOceans or email us. The address is NakedOceans at the thenakedscientist.com.
0: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans.
1: You're listening to Naked Oceans with me, Sarah Castor-Perry. In last month's show, we looked at some of the ways we pollute the oceans by using them as a dumping ground for so much rubbish. But this month, we're exploring the variety of stuff we take out of the oceans. For centuries, the seas have not only been a source of food for people around the world, but also a treasure chest of useful substances. Coming up, we'll hear about one of the most ancient and highly prized ocean objects – but first, scientists today are finding many useful applications of marine organisms.
2: There are. Times when-
1: That's Professor Carmadillo and his musical tribute to the amazing green fluorescent protein, first extracted from jellyfish and that's become a powerful research tool. And you can check out his new album, Great Leaps, at his website, professorCarmadillo.com. And if you want to find out a bit more about how GFP was discovered, have a look back at our November 2011 podcast all about bioluminescence. But it's not just glowing gene markers that we can get from ocean creatures. Since the mid-20th century, scientists have been investigating marine species and the chemicals they produce, pointing towards new medicines that can be used to fight diseases from cancer to sleeping sickness.
2: Fifty years ago, a group of organic chemists who were interested in marine science and interested in diving put those interests together and, and decided to start going to the ocean and collecting plants and animals and extracting them and studying the organic compounds that they make. And that was really just a bonanza because pretty much everything that was picked up had new molecules in it. So it was, it was sort of the, the golden age of marine natural products chemistry.
1: That was Paul Jensen from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who studies marine bacteria and whose work has led to the discovery of compounds now in trials for cancer treatment. Initially, much of the research into finding new molecules focused on larger ocean species, but then a whole new avenue of research opened up.
2: As time went on, there was the realisation that most of the diversity in the ocean is actually microbial, and no one had studied it yet in terms of looking at the chemicals or natural products that these microbes make. And so that really ushered in sort of the next wave of ocean exploration in terms of bioprospecting, if you want to call it that, but I would call it natural products research.
1: So why do species from bacteria to corals actually produce these compounds?
4: Initially the invertebrates, so the sponges and soft corals and sea squirts, are interesting because they have no obvious other means of defence. So we're looking at them because they have a chemical defence system, uh, which acts as an alternative immune system perhaps, and these compounds tend to be very, very active.
1: That's Marcel Jaspers from the University of Aberdeen, who runs the Marine Biodiscovery Centre, which actively looks for potential medically useful chemicals produced by marine species. As we just heard, the larger species being investigated, the sponges and corals, possibly use the active chemicals they produce as a defence mechanism. But what about bacteria? Paul Jensen.
2: In some cases, these molecules may be produced for defensive purposes. They may be to compete and to sort of defend a resource from other competing microbes. But it can also be more complicated than that. They can be signaling molecules. There's a lot of chemical communication going on in the ocean. In fact, this is a really exciting forefront of the field right now because people are realizing that the language that microbes communicate in is chemistry. And understanding how and why they produce these molecules in that process of communication is really sort of an exciting part of where all this is going.
1: So, if marine organisms produce these compounds as defense against infections or to outcompete other microorganisms, it's a logical step to guess that they could be effective treatments for infectious diseases. Another exciting non-medical part of Paul Jensen's research is that it's giving us clues to the evolution of bacteria in the oceans.
2: When we look at these organisms, one of the most fundamental things that distinguishes what we think are different groups are these molecules that they make. And that's been a a challenge in microbiology from, from the early days, is that You know, these bacteria, in the case of bacteria, you know, they don't really look like much. And in many cases, it's hard to distinguish them. And so so now we have genomics, and we can sequence their genomes, and that gives us a complete blueprint of who they are. That tells us everything that they're capable of doing. And when we look at the genomic level and we compare groups that we think are different but closely related... What we see is that it's mostly in terms of these molecules or or chemicals that they're making. So we think the ability of bacteria to produce these, what we call secondary metabolites, may be fundamentally important in defining who they are.
1: And it's this kind of research, finding out who the bacteria are phylogenetically, as well as why they produce these compounds, that is the focus of Paul's work. The potential medical benefits are, for him, an exciting side effect. But once you extract the chemicals that you think might have some kind of useful medical action, how do you decide what to test them against? It's very much down to the research interests of the lab involved and any industry collaborators. But as Marcel Jaspers explains, it helps to narrow it down.
4: So first of all, you need to know uh, what your best bets are. So in natural products, the, the things that we look at mainly are cancer, inflammation, infectious diseases, and parasitic diseases. That's where they've been proven to work the best. Most of the drugs that are coming forward through the pipeline are for cancer. Uh, There's painkillers on the market from sea snails, essentially, that that have been developed. So we're sort of really thinking about how to get from seabed to bedside, as people sometimes say. And the answer is really that there's a lot of effort needed to to go from the small scale, the milligram quantities we can isolate, to the kilogram scales that are needed for clinical trials.
1: And it's been a very successful field. Several molecules extracted from microbes, sea squirts and sponges have already undergone successful trials against cancer. Each of the compounds works in a slightly different way, by stopping cells from dividing or disrupting the cell cycle or blood supply to the tumour. But as we heard from Marcel, the main challenge is one of scale. How do we produce enough of the compound to use in a clinical trial? And then what happens if it ends up being rolled out as a treatment to the public? Isolating the gene that codes for the compound you're interested in and inserting that gene into bacteria that will then produce it en masse is one solution. This is one benefit to looking in bacteria for these compounds in the first place. Another benefit comes from a conservation point of view, reducing the pressure on larger organisms that might be collected for this kind of research. But we shouldn't forget about the conservation of the bacteria either.
2: a lot of people don't think about the the conservation side of microbes and and so there's there's a couple of points here. one, in the early days when people were going out and collecting macroorganisms, there's some issues there from a conservation side because if you find something, um, it might come from a rare organism and oftentimes these molecules are very complex and they're not easy to synthesize in the laboratory. And so you have to go to nature to collect them. So the idea of working with microbes is attractive because you can culture them and you don't have to go back to nature to get them over and over again. So it's a renewable resource. So so that's very attractive. But secondarily, this whole point about, you know, what's the diversity that's out there now And how is that diversity changing in response to, you know, the impacts that humans have on the environment? And without question, it is changing. You know, we don't know if that's good or bad from the perspective of natural product discovery. But my hunch is it would be bad because most likely the way things are changing is we're going to see less diversity over time. So that's actually a very important consideration that's often not even discussed when people think about conservation and and diversity issues.
1: That was Paul Jensen from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and we also heard from Marcel Jaspers at the University of Aberdeen. If you want to find out more about their research, just follow the links on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Now, from some of the latest medical breakthroughs coming from the oceans to one of the most ancient and still one of the most valuable substances we find in the sea. Ambergris comes from the guts of sperm whales, and for centuries people have found lumps of it lying on beaches and invented all sorts of uses for it, most famously in fragrances. And there are still big mysteries surrounding this peculiar stuff. Christopher Kemp is a molecular biologist who spent the last couple of years on the trail of ambergris, and his book, Floating Gold, has just been published by University of Chicago Press. For a natural compound known for its use in perfumes, the surprising thing Christopher found out during his research was just how difficult it is to describe the smell of ambergris.
0: Throughout history, people have really struggled to adequately describe the smell of ambergris. I actually have a couple of pieces right here. As I speak to you, and they're they're both very different to one another. In that I've got one piece that's black and fresh. It's even a little sticky in my hand, and uh, it smells like sheep dung. It's just incredibly dungy. It's what uh, an organic chemist or a perfumer would call indolic. It's got lots of indoles and scatols in. Kind of one of the more compelling things about it as a subject is that once it's been expelled in the ocean by a whale, it requires years and years, perhaps even several decades of kind of floating around in the ocean, being photo oxidized, being worked on by the seawater to mature into the really valuable expensive stuff. So I'm holding now a piece of, of white ambergris and uh, it smells completely different. It smells much sweeter, much more pleasant. It's just not, not as in your face, if you like, as the fresh stuff.
1: And while writing his book, Christopher fell under the spell of some pieces of extremely expensive ambergris.
0: If you had somehow managed to capture and distill the smell of the ocean, it would smell exactly like this one. this one piece in particular that I'm thinking about. It was so kind of uh, ozone-y. It was so full of that smell of wide open spaces and and seaweed and marine life that it was almost like a scratch and sniff ocean sticker or something. It was uh, really caught me off guard almost. I was so taken with it. I almost offered to buy it on the spot, and it it was probably worth about a thousand dollars. And I I was not in a position to spend a thousand dollars on a piece of aged whale poop. It was just such a smell, I didn't really want to stop smelling it.
1: The main use of ambergris today is as a fixative in the perfume industry, for which the genuine article is still extremely highly valued. It's not only the smell of the ambergris itself that's highly prized, but its ability to make other aromas last for longer on the skin due to its extremely low volatility. In the past, ambergris has been used for all sorts of things. It was used as a cooking ingredient, and as late as the 18th century, people were using it as a medicine, prescribing it to treat everything from headaches to impotence, bruises, and even as an antidepressant.
0: The one use that I was really tickled by was that it used to be worn as jewellery as well. You know, people would carve it and make ornate jewellery out of it. It was The heat from a woman's body would kind of warm up the ambergris and make it smell more.
1: And all the while they've been using it, people have also been inventing a host of ideas about where this stuff actually comes from.
0: There were explanations that it was a meteor that had fallen, you know, from outer space. Other people said that it was the liver of a certain species of fish. Because amiguris often appeared on the shore after storms or periods of stormy weather, there were quite a few theories that it grew on the ocean floor and was dislodged by stormy seas. So... People thought that it was a special type of mushroom or fungus that grew there or a fruit like a pear that grew in the ocean. People thought that it was the sperm of whales or that it was honey that had been cured by saltwater. When you think about it, the truth sounds just as ridiculous as, uh, as all the other theories. So it's not a surprise to me that some of them are so strange.
1: The truth about the source of ambergris was only revealed with the development of the whaling industry. As people started killing more and more whales, it became clear that ambergris comes from inside sperm whales. The most detailed analysis of how exactly ambergris forms was written by whale scientist Robert Clark, who passed away last year. A bit like when seashells make pearls to deal with irritating bits of sand and grit, it seems that when the sharp, indigestible beaks of the squid that they eat irritates a sperm whale's guts, they trigger production of a cholesterol-rich secretion that binds the beaks together into a smooth, solid lump. So, mystery solved. Perhaps. But there's still some confusion about which end that lump comes out of. Is ambergris whale vomit or whale poo?
0: If someone stumbles on a piece of ambergris somewhere, you'll get some headline in a newspaper like, whale cuffs up a jackpot, or moby sick makes man rich. And so there is still this confusion about whether it's regurgitated or whether it's expelled and pooped out. But uh, you can talk about uh, whether it's just like a hairball, because that's another thing that you come across time and again. But it's not, because hairballs don't smell like poop.
1: (laughs) And the key component that's responsible for the unique olfactory nature of ambergris is a molecule called ambrine.
0: It's the building block that gives rise to all the other aromatic compounds that are found in ambergris. And ironically, it's it's odourless. You know, it's a little, you know, very nondescript little molecular compound. It uh, It basically, over time, in the ocean, breaks down to produce this kind of bouquet of other aromatic compounds that all smell of different things and that's that's why people smell these these certain things like tobacco and mold and seawater and then so the final so the journey is from amberine to a substance called ambergris oxide which is the one thing that really smells exactly like ambergris that doesn't smell like anything else and nothing else really smells like
1: it's that ambergris oxide, or naphtho that chemists have copied to make synthetic ambergris. But as Christopher says, it's not really the same.
0: But it's like comparing an original Van Gogh to a print of Van Gogh. They certainly have the same uh, molecular composition, but there's just something there's something lacking. There's something that cannot be recreated in the lab.
1: In his book, Christopher tells many stories of people finding objects washed up on a beach and believing they found their fortune in a lump of ambergris. Sometimes they're right, but often they're wrong. He spent a long time himself on a quest to find his own piece of valuable flotsam. So how do you know if you've found the genuine article? Well, it can be pretty difficult. We already know that it can have various different smells, but it also comes in various shapes and colours.
0: It can be anything from... Black, like a little piece of coal, to white and pitted, like a piece of pumice, and any colour in between, really. And it just has to really look like nothing else on the shoreline, you know. So that's the best way to try and find it. So basically, it's a process of elimination. If you can say, well, that's definitely some rotting seaweed, or that's definitely a piece of driftwood or a dead seagull, then you know that's not ambergris. But otherwise, there's this enormous range of things that could be ambergris.
1: But to help narrow things down, there are a couple of simple tests that can help identify the real deal.
0: It's slightly less dense than water, and so it floats on the surface, but not quite on the surface. It's almost like uh, an iceberg in that part of it would bob above the surface, but most of it would be below and so you have to make sure that it floats a little bit. If it feels heavy like a stone, then it's not ambergris. The other traditional test that even if you go back to you know 1720 and read articles that were written then, this is the test they tell you to do then, it's the test now, is the, is the hot needle test where you heat up a needle or a safety pin or something like that until it's really hot. And then you take your piece of suspected ambergris and you poke it, With the hot needle. If it's ambergris, then it would melt into a chocolate brown liquid and give off a real aroma, and there'd be a little bit of smoke because it's highly flammable. And that's really traditionally the surefire way of making sure that you've got ambergris. But there are plenty of things that float in the ocean that would react like that to a hot needle, and that's where people get into a lot of trouble. These days, The things that are most often mistaken for ambergris are actually man-made products that were manufactured by some industrial process and have been, you know, dumped into the ocean either on purpose or by accident. And they've floated there for decades until they're no longer really recognizable. So often people will find these really weird shapes that obviously were plastics or something like that. And they melt really readily when you poke them with a hot needle. And so that's something that used to be a great test maybe two or three hundred years ago when there were fewer things that would react the way that ambergris does. But, but these days, I think that uh, you could walk along almost any beach after a really violent storm and you could find things that have been man made in some factory that melt into a chopper brand liquid.
1: That was molecular biologist and writer Christopher Kemp introducing that most mysterious and treasured of ocean substances, ambergris. Do check out Christopher's book, Floating Gold, and you can find out more about ambergris at our webpages, thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, time's just about up for Naked Oceans this month, but before we go, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. Here's our Critter of the Month.
3: My name is Emmett Duffy. I'm a marine ecologist at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science in the USA. Being a marine biologist, that's a really tough one to answer because there are so many amazing creatures in the ocean. But I think if I had to pick one, it would be uh, the flying fish, uh, although I prefer it's, its much more elegant name in Spanish, which is the pez volador. And uh, I love the flying fish because they remind me of the tropical ocean of being out on the open turquoise blue water and, and uh, just seeing them skittering across the horizon is is such a wonderful thing. And also because, of course, they, uh, uh, I, I identify with them because they're amphibious in a sense. Um, they're partially at home outside the water and also home inside the water, which is uh, what I aspire to be as a diver and marine biologist.
1: That was Emmett Duffy from the Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences in the US, introducing the graceful flying fish. And you can find lots more ocean critters at our website. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Naked Oceans. Many thanks to Paul Jensen, Marcel Jaspers, Christopher Kemp, Emmett Duffy and Professor Carmadillo. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. So keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans. Send us an email. The address is nakedoceans at And you'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
0: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.